0: Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui billens and today's episode is with Claire Bourne. Claire Bourne is a historical linguist whose research is centered around language change and language documentation in Indigenous Australia. She received her BA in Linguistics and Classics from the Australian National University and her PhD in Linguistics from Harvard University. She works with speakers of endangered languages with archival sound and print materials and uses computational and phylogenetic methods. She is currently the editor of the journal Diachronica. Claire is a professor in linguistics at Yale University and is also the author of Linguistic Fieldwork, a Practical Guide. I'm a pretty big fan of Claire's. I had read her linguistic fieldwork manual several times before even going into the field it was one of the required texts when i did my masters in language documentation and description at soas so i was really excited to chat with her and hear her story and if you're interested in hearing a bit about her her fieldwork manual and her writing process you can check out the Field Notes Patreon because Claire was also kind enough to do a mini bonus episode for the Field Notes Patreon supporters at the $5 per month tier and above. And I'll link that in the show notes for anyone who wants to check it out. Another reason I was really excited to have Claire on the podcast is because Australia has been a little bit underrepresented on the show. Uh, There's only been one other linguist, Dr. Doro Hoffman, who works with uh, the Malak Malak people. And she came on in season two to discuss her work uh, in Australia, particularly about Dreamtime narratives, uh, which I will also link in the show notes if you want to check that out. But yeah, I'm uh, really thrilled to share this episode, especially because I think it's a nice example of someone who's done a lot of work with uh, not only quite varied groups, but varied uh, language situations, language contexts. Um, And also her experience working with archival materials was very uh, interesting to me. So, So yeah, let's get to the interview. Hi, Claire, how
1: are you? I am great. Thanks. How are you? It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Yes, thank you so much for taking the time, especially at this time in the semester. I really appreciate it. So to start just straight off the bat, uh, can you tell us how you first became interested in linguistics? Um, sure. Yeah. So
1: it was probably in high school. Um, I went to a an all girls high school in Melbourne in Australia. Um, and this was the the early to mid nineties. Um, and so it was the sort of school that made it very easy to study languages and things like that. Made it more difficult to do more STEM, math, um, physicsy type of things. So I did a lot of languages, and I thought it was really cool. And um, my Japanese teacher also taught Latin, and she had done some linguistics as a college student, and so uh, she brought up some uh, this idea that maybe linguistics might be cool and so on. So when I went to college, I looked up the linguistics department and took intro linguistics thinking that, yeah, maybe that would be fun. Maybe I could do that as well as doing classics, and I signed up as an English major. Um, the Australian system for college is quite different from the US system, so you specialize from first year, and you pick your major from first year that it may be a little different now, but at the time there was not a lot of general education credits, or it was all about depth rather than about breadth. So, uh, yeah, so I started thinking about an English major and, uh, and classics. So I took Latin and Greek and so on, but linguistics was really, really cool. And so I kept taking more linguistics classes and ended up uh, double majoring in linguistics and classics. And along the way, there were uh, people to talk to, the instructors and professors at, at the Australian National University where I went were very welcoming of students who were interested in research, particularly in Aboriginal languages in Australia and things like that. So I just kind of went into that path and then could not imagine doing anything else. So I went on to graduate school and uh, I guess here I am. Uh, here I am now.
0: Yeah, I hear that a lot where people start out studying something something else. And maybe it's because linguistics is not offered at you know, a lower level of education. You can really only study it in university. But often I hear people start off as like a biology major or engineering and then they take one linguistics course and they're hooked. And then that completely changes the trajectory.
1: Right. Yeah. Actually, for me, the the first the intro class I, I took at the start, I didn't actually do very well in It, it was uh, the you know, I really liked it and, and so on, but the the uh, final exam was uh, it was not something maybe not something I should admit now, and not something I want I look back on with a uh, a great deal of fondness. But um, but yeah, things. Things got better as uh, as I kept going, and particularly I think once I was able to to see what sort of work I could do combining historical linguistics and the sorts of things I was interested in for classics and uh, and so on and work with aboriginal languages and fieldwork and uh and that sort of thing. Uh the paths started off very far from uh, from each other because of course when uh you're doing classics and the linguistics of latin and greek and so on it's look up the Look up what other people have said for the last couple of hundred years in the library. And, uh, it's often very focused on literature and mm-hmm. on history and, uh, and those sorts of things. Whereas at that point, probably more so, even more so than, than now, I was mostly focused on the language structure and, uh, and things like that and saw the, saw the history stuff as being more, more separate. Of course, you know, a lot of what I argue now is that we shouldn't treat the historical and social side of things separately from the, from the structural side of uh, of language, so it's kind of ironic that I'm arguing yeah. this uh, now, and you know, I'm not pushing it as a uh, certainly as a certainly not pushing it as a way that linguistics uh, should be or anything like that. Of course, for doing fieldwork, the social side of things is probably almost more important than the the structural side of things. But but that was kind of how I got into uh, thinking about linguistics and language and working on Aboriginal languages, and uh, and then into the field side of side of things, and then from there into to uh, documentation and uh, language reclamation and things like that as well.
0: Uh, yeah, I would love to hear more about how you combine historical linguistics and fieldwork and and also language rec- reclamation, like you said.
1: Right. Yeah. Sometimes they they go together better than for other times. Um, I think for so for working with communities in Australia, there's been quite a tradition of people who are interested in synchronic and contemporary language sorts of questions, but also what language can tell us about the past. So one of the things I think about when I think about language change and so on is what sorts of evidence do we get from language, from contemporary languages about the histories of language speakers and signers, language users, language communities. Um, we can tell quite a lot from loanwords, from which languages are more closely related to each other and all of, all of those sorts of things. For Aboriginal Australia, that's, I think language is particularly important as a source of information about the past because the genetic Work is very, very patchy, very controversial, um, very difficult to make something of, and also works with a time frame that's very different from the language time frame. Um, the a lot of genetics work is about the past fifty thousand years or the past sixty thousand years or or, or longer uh, even. Um, it's about relationships between Aboriginal communities and contemporary Aboriginal people and the first migrations out of Africa a hundred thousand years ago. And that's definitely not a time scale that linguistics and language is, it really has anything to say about. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can say quite a lot about the last 5,000 years or, um, also maybe five to 10 to 10,000 years and also about the last couple of hundred years in, uh, in Australia. And that's an area that speaks more with maybe anthropology to some extent, archaeology as, uh, as well. Although, of course, archaeology is also interested in the very lot long scale time frames as well as the the more recent ones. Um and so when I do field work and think about, uh, language documentation and historical things as well. Um, I'm thinking about what sorts of information would go into a comparative study between closely related groups or between groups across the uh, across the country. That said, of course, once we're thinking about fieldwork and language documentation, we should also be thinking about what communities want to get out of the fieldwork as uh, as well. And sometimes that's closely aligned with more historical work and sometimes it's not at all closely aligned with uh with that and so for the uh for the communities i've worked with there's been some interest in thinking about language and uh and the the past and so on but for the most part the sorts of things that we say in historical linguistics don't really line up terribly well with traditional views of of the past of Aboriginal communities um, so for instance for bardie people bar people have always been in the in traditional Bardi country, um, as far as Bardi people are concerned, and they uh, there's a evidence that communities bring and uh, elders bring to that. For example, that Bardi people know what's good to eat in Bardi country. Bardi people have the songs and the stories for Bardi country, and uh, and so on as well. And so, I don't want to. I certainly don't want to say that's wrong or anything like that. But but historical linguistics provides a uh, maybe another way of thinking about other timescales mm-hmm. as uh, as well. Yeah, so so that's all by way of I guess a, a long way of saying sometimes these things go together really well, and sometimes they uh, they're much more separate. But but either way, they kind of ways of working together. Um, actually, one more one more way of thinking about this is the the work I've been doing more with archive work and with language documentation for communities where where the community has. Under undergone a great deal of disruption, like that's that's a euphemism for genocide. Why am I using euphemisms on a podcast like uh, like this, where um, there is a great deal of uh, of genocide that's happened in Australia over the last um, couple of hundred years? And um, so, I, I work with communities on language reclamation, where the where the documentation is salvage documentation or memory documentation. And um, so, part of doing the historical work and comparative work is figuring out what sorts of sources work for particular communities? What sort of information is there about language and how can that material be returned appropriately to communities? Um, And so, for instance, if we have word lists in inaccessible sources, say with handwriting that no one can read, we're working on digitizing those materials and making them available to community members. Or if there are notebooks in archives in other parts of the world, which are not accessible, again, not accessible to community members we're trying to make those more accessible and make sure that the the right people are able to access their their traditional language materials. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a I guess a kind of folding together of research work and and community oriented work as
0: uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Are there any like lessons you've learned from your archiving work that you could share with with the mm-hmm. you know wider audience about? Or, you know, archiving with speakers of Aboriginal languages in Australia So for example,
1: language documentation brings up a lot of personal information often it's very difficult to separate individual life histories from oral history in general or community history or the the way things were type recordings and so when we're doing language documentation, through oral history narratives, or through conversations, or through things that become more or less personal. Some of that is fine to put in an archive, but some of it probably isn't. Or, you know, I'm thinking about the sorts of conversations I have with my parents, or used to have with my grandparents, or I have with my kids now. If that was part of a, say, language documentation for Australian English as spoken in New Haven, Connecticut (laughs) in 2022, some of that would be totally Fine to put in an archive, and I'd be okay with it going wherever. But other parts of it, I would not be okay with mm-hmm. for um, for that. And so, so there's there's that sort of thing. But I think that applies to communities everywhere. There's Absolutely. greater or lesser degrees of personal information. Yeah, yeah. No, there, there are a couple of things that, that that do come to mind for that. So one is that many Aboriginal communities have restrictions on saying the names of people who've passed away, and so they might not be. In practice, when materials are being recorded, but subsequently someone might pass away, particularly people who've worked very closely in language documentation projects. And then there's questions about how appropriate it is to play those materials or to mention that person's name or things like, things like that. And so, so that's, that's one thing that comes to mind, particularly for, for Aboriginal communities. Mm Another is when working with archival sources, historical sources, older sources, and then trying to see what sorts of information is there and how that might relate to contemporary sources. There's a great deal of material that is either not appropriate, would not be said in the same way these days words that were accepted at the time which are now racial slurs for example or things that are put into materials but are would just not be recorded these uh these days yeah
0: can you share with us a bit about your fieldwork biography you've done a lot of fieldwork and i would love to to know like where did you start what you know what are you doing now
1: <laughs> yeah sure yeah happy to to do that so i started when I was an undergraduate in, uh, so at the Australian National University, as we, we talked about just before, and in my last year of being an undergrad, I found out that Geta Ackliff, who is uh, who is now retired, but was a PhD student um, in uh, in the early nineteen nineties at ANU, uh, was looking for someone to work with Bardi people to in northwest Australia to do language documentation work and to help out with school programs and to uh, make sure that the materials that she had recorded with elders were accessible to community members. It's relevant how she started working on, uh, on Bardi and, uh, with Bardi people as, uh, as well, because that I think informs a lot of how the, the field work on Bardi has, what, what I've done and what others have done over the, the last 20 to 30 years or so. In, I think it was in 1988, ni- 1988 or 1999, one of the Bardi elders who's passed away now, called up the linguistics department of the Australian National University on the phone and said that he was looking for a linguist to help Bharati people document the language. And they were looking for a storybook that would put down Bardi knowledge, Bharati stories, Bharati uh, Bardi history, a dictionary, um, so all the, the words in the Bharati language and what they meant, a book to teach the kids and the grandkids so that the Bharati language could be passed on, and a set of maps for for Barley places to to talk about Barley country, mm. and so um, so Geta started working with with the Wigan family and the EJ and Isaac families at One On Point to to do this language documentation, um, and from the start. Work with Bardi for 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 this time. That there have been other people who've other researchers who've worked with Bardi in the past, but for for this documentation project, in many ways, it's all one project. Has been very much community led along those sorts of terms. So it's material that sets out Bardi history and Bardi knowledge for Bardi people and for the kids and uh, and grandkids. That said, another thing that's come up with elders quite a lot is them being very clear that Bardi is just like French, just like other languages, and given that Bardi is a language just like French and so on, and when linguists talk about French and do analyses of French, they publish them in journals and they talk about them with other linguists and in universities and so on, they were pretty clear that they would like that to happen with Bardi as, uh, as well. So part of showing that Bardi people are still here, that Bardi is still spoken, that Bardi is a wonderful, complex language just like French and should have the status of languages just like French. The elders were pretty clear that they wanted to see it in, the, in universities and, uh, and so on as well. So they've been pretty happy with doing linguistic work or work that's more more theoretical linguistics and more about figuring out the, the underlying structure of the, the body language, even if that doesn't always make it into learner's guides or into dictionaries and, uh, and things like that. So I started working on Bardi in 1980, uh, 1999. I went as a, a preliminary field trip to work in the school and with the Kimberley Language Resource Centre on stories for school materials and uh, and work along those lines. And I liked it; they liked me. Um, and so we've been we've been working together pretty much ever since in different uh, different formats. Um, so I did a number of field trips between nineteen ninety nine and two thousand and eleven. And since then, most of the work has been remote. We chat quite a bit through Facebook. We have a Facebook party group and it's moved as the, the elders have passed away. It's moved more from language documentation and recording and things like that to more language reclamation, revitalization, thinking about how to, how to keep the language strong for, for the kids and the grandkids and, um, and future generations. Um, and so we're, we're continuing to, to, Work work along those lines, but the, the nature of the work has shifted somewhat. Yeah. So for example, we now have a mobile phone dictionary that has the uh the Bardi dictionary, but um but it's available on cell phones and uh and things like that. We now have a Google Drive with the recordings of stories from uh the last actually going back to the nineteen seventies on uh on all sorts of different barry oral history recordings and those are for the barry community and we're always fi- trying to figure out ways to uh, to make those materials accessible to to Bardi people Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also done field work in Australia in a couple of different areas. Actually, Barty was not my first field experience. My very first field work was in Western Queensland, shortly before I went to One Arm Point for the first time. And this was with the, uh, the late Louise Herkus, who was a researcher at ANU and, um, uh, and faculty at ANU for many, many years. Uh, at that point, she uh, had just turned 75 and was no longer terribly keen actually I think it was more her son was no longer keen for her to take trips to out that Queensland to remote areas without someone to go along with her. Um, and so my first field work was accompanying Louise to Cannemalla and Rockhampton, so two places in in Queensland to work with uh Galilee and Puntamara. Uh, community members on language documentation. And so we, we worked a bit with, um, with the late Peter Hood and with the Booth family and, uh, made some, made some recordings and, uh, checked some, some things that were recorded in earlier, earlier recordings and earlier materials. And that actually led to one of the things I'm working on at the moment, which is a Galilee language reclamation project. And that's in conjunction with Toby Adams. Toby is really the leader of this uh, this project. Um, so he's Galilee from Southeastern Queensland. And uh, he contacted me very early in the pandemic. It was like April 2020 with uh some just to to get in contact to see what sorts of things we might be able to do with Galilee to make Galilee um more accessible to to Galilee community members. And so that has been remote documentation from the start. I'm hoping that Toby and I will get to meet each other in person for the first time this uh, this July. Um, I'm going to to Australia this summer, hopefully. Um, and yeah, so that work was pretty much aimed from the start at doing at being remote and being something that was usable for Galilee people who are really spread out over a very wide area in Queensland and northern New South Wales. Um, so that's been word of the week sort of things. We also have a mobile phone dictionary and a talking dictionary for Galilee now. Toby's been doing work with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. They have an ABC Kids program and uh there was a podcast that he did i can send you links to these awesome. for the, yeah. uh, for the blog and we can we can put them up yeah there. perfect and yeah so so that work has so that was i guess my my first field work but is also now the current uh, current remote work that um that i'm mostly doing and finally, kind of in the middle of all of these things, I worked in Arnhem Land a bit as well. So this is in the you know, central, eastern part of the Northern Territory, the northeastern part of the Northern Territory, on Yanyungo and yongo languages, and that was also language documentation uh, materials. We did a learner's guide. I contributed to a dictionary and various other recordings for uh, for language as uh, as well. So those have been the main areas of field work, direct work with Aboriginal people who – speaking their language or, uh, or languages or reclaiming their languages. I've also been moving more into archival work recently, uh, that started when my kids were really little and it was basically impossible to, well, impossible or inadvisable to take them on a 24 hour flight to, uh, to Australia. Um, and since then I've moved more into
0: archival work and, uh, comparative archival work as,
1: as well with the Chirilla database.
0: That's awesome. It sounds like you were really ahead of the curve in terms of remote field work and and now of course with the pandemic people are all about remote documentation and how can we, you know, do field work without actually going into the field. When you started in 2011, was it a pretty like easy natural transition or was it how was it? <laughs>
1: Yeah, no it it was not easy and I'd say it grew very gradually over okay. quite some years and has only really been more like documentation over the last the last 3 to 4 years or so. One thing that made a big difference was when one on point community got good cell phone service and so better 4G internet connections that made it much more easy to, to do stuff over the, over the web with things like Facebook or chatting over FaceTime or, or things like, things like that. Um, that made a very big difference. And that's really only been in the last, I'd say the last couple of years. I've also taught a couple of field methods classes that have been more or less remote. And that was useful when we suddenly had to pivot to online teaching in 2020 to, to know some of the things that worked and some of the things that didn't work so much. But we did two previous field method, field methods classes through. Online link ups in quite, quite different ways. So one was with the Goldfields Language Center and Wankatha language in fall 2019. And that was with the time difference. It's a 12 hour time difference. So we would meet in the evenings and we would meet with Wankatha community members in early morning, their time and do pretty traditional type field work. Asking questions, we'd share things through Google Docs and things like that. And um, Roslyn and um, uh, and Co were at the the local radio station, so we had a pretty nice setup for for that. The other field work was through the Western Carolina University Cherokee Language Program, oh, cool. and in 2014, 20- I think it was spring 2016, if I remember right, we ran a field methods class where we worked through Skype with a combination of the collections at Yale's Beinecke Rare Books Library and the Cherokee Language Program in um, uh, Western Carolina University that was a different sort of program. So we were, it was more like a formal classroom setup, up um, and then members of the Cherokee program were able to visit Yale at the end of the semester. And we were able to work intensively with some of the manuscript collections at um, at Yale. I'd say one very big difference between the remote sort of field work and in person field work was I don't think it would have been possible without the existing community connections and knowing each other in person, starting things from scratch in a pandemic I don't think would have worked for, uh, for what we did. Although I guess having said that, the work with Toby and Galilee was starting from scratch, but it was kind of meant to be online. Um, and it was so, so it was a different sort of, more like we were working together on materials that had already been recorded rather than creating new materials from scratch around the the
0: language. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the language context of, especially Bardi, but some of the other languages you. I think you mentioned three languages. You know what? What is the situation? So you were talking about um like language learning materials in the nineties. Are those are those people now? Do they have children as well who are learning Bardi? What What is it like?
1: Yeah. So each of the three Aboriginal communities I've worked with in Australia have very different language histories and, um, language context these, these days. So for, for Bardee, there are still, still people with first, um, first language knowledge of Bardee and, um, other emerging elders and emerging language learners. I am friends with the grandkids and the great grandkids of the elders I started working with in the, the early nineties. Those elders, their parents and grandparents worked with linguists in the, 70s, 60s, 50s, and 1930s wow. as well. So there's quite a long tr- tradition of Bharati language work in, in somewhat in somewhat different ways for different purposes. But um, but yeah, so Bharati people have been working with linguists for uh, for over a hundred years at uh, at this point. Um, and as the uh, so I, I'd say the the generation of elders that. I worked with started working with in the late nineties and who started the language program in the early nineties were really the last generation to be more comfortable in bhardi than in English um but that said, there is still a lot of bhardi knowledge in the community and a lot of interest in learning more bhardi amongst. People my age uh, and people younger, um, as and uh, some some elders as uh, as well, and so so what we've been focusing on now has been more ways of bringing Bardi back into everyday life, ways of using phrases in conversation, ways of making the stories and the uh, language information more accessible. Um, the writing system for Bardi is relatively straightforward, but it. Very different from English, and so for uh, people who've grown up reading English, and for uh, for then switching to Bharati, that's uh, that's that's quite a hurdle. So, um, so we've been working on ways to make that easier to to do. Just so the uh, all of the the stuff we have for Bharati is not lock, locked up in this writing system that, um, that that's not not readable mm-hmm. for Yanango Yandangu is spoken in a region that has a large number of Aboriginal languages and languages that are still being learned and passed on as first or second languages. English is at, it's a second or third or fourth language in communities which are um, a pretty highly monolingual. English is used to some extent. Creole is also used. So there are, uh, and, um, Aboriginal English as well. Actually, that's true at one point as well. There are, um, Aboriginal Englishes and Creoles that, um, that are, are also used in this context too. But Yan is, uh, has been losing out to other related Aboriginal languages rather than to, uh, to English, I'd say. Um, and so those materials, I'd say, are, are a, a record and I, th- think they are used um in community programs and so on but i haven't really kept contact with uh with, with people at um community for for some years now so i i'm not really sure what um at, like how how that work is being used and would be happy to happy to help with uh with that if uh if appropriate but um uh but it's a a different sort of I I felt like I was kind of more of a, more of a language contractor, um, in, um, uh, Milan Gimby than say with, um, the Bharati community where we, we had a much, much longer negotiation of roles and where, where at this point I have what a 23 year history with the community and friends and, uh, and so on there. So it's a, it's a different sort of working relationship there. Um, for Galilee, the language situation is more of, uh, language reclamation and language awakening. The Galilee community was, forcibly removed from traditional country in the 19, late 1920s. And um, they were moved to a number of different Aboriginal reservations and communities um, and missions in Far Eastern Queensland. And so this was a, a government removal to to different areas hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away. And so the current Galilee community um it's their parents and grandparents who who grew up knowing something about the language, but mostly hearing English or Aboriginal English or Murray talk, um, in, uh, in different communities. Uh, there are some Galilee elders who know something of the language, but for the most part, this is a, a situation where we're reawakening the language and re, reintroducing language materials after, after a hiatus of, I guess, 80, 70, 80 years for the, for the most part. And this has also been a gathering together point for Galilee people as well. So having uh, particularly the work that Toby's done through the Australian Broadcasting Corporation through the Galilee Mulkana website, that has been a point of contact for Galilee people who are reclaiming their heritage and finding family coll- connections that they that they didn't know about. Um, and so language there has been very much about creating community ties and bringing people to, together. And I I feel very honored to be a part of that even though I'm very far away it's um it's been wonderful to to see
0: that uh, see that happen and the work that toby and um the the Gullily culture committee have been doing yeah I'm so inspired by how you continue to have a close relationship even though physically you're so far from the people that you work with that I think that's really really nice well thank you, Claire, so much for making time for Field Notes. Where can people find you if they want to read more of your work or hear more about your research? Where can they find you online?
1: I'm on Twitter with the handle Angargun, um, A-N-G-G-A-R-R-G-O-O-N. And uh, I also have a website at campuspress.yale.edu slash Claire Bowen. Perfect. Um, which I guess I linked yeah. from the, uh, the the Field Notes website. And yeah, happy to continue the conversation there. Thank you. Thanks so much, Claire. Oh, thank you, Marty. It's been great. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui-Billens, with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by e Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lingfieldnotes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple Podcast review. Thanks for listening.